you for joining us. You're listening to Tank Talk with Integrity Environmental, where we speak with founder, principal consultant, and bulk fuel storage expert Shannon Olkers about regulations, safety, and useful tips for smooth sailing through the bulk fuel storage industry. Come learn the unique joys of work and life in Alaska with industry experts, including our team, vendors we work with, and companies we support. morning. Welcome to Tank Talk Podcast. I am very excited to welcome Emily Rohr to our podcast today. She is the Application Engineering Manager for the Vapor Control Systems Division at the John Zink Company, and she is the design engineer on many of the vapor control and capture projects that our firm has also been a part of. I am incredibly excited to have her here today to talk about vapor capture and vapor control technology because many of our clients uh, are required to have that capability under 40 CFR 63, which is a very large, very complex air regulation. Emily and I have worked together on the installation of a couple of different vapor capture units and vapor combustion unit systems. And I really wanted to pick her brain about these systems. Good morning, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So I have to start out, I have to ask, was John Zink a real person? (laughs) That is everyone's favorite question. And everybody always calls the hotline saying, is John Zink available? So that is not (laughs) a a unknown question to us. Um, So yes, John Zink was a person. Um, So the company itself was started in the 20s. Um, So this company has been around for a very long time um, in the combustion world. With specifics to that, it was found in the 20s, but one aspect of John Zink that people don't know is Coke Industries acquired John Zink in the late 1980s. So we have been part of the Coke Industries company uh, specifically for about 30 years now. So a lot of the actual background and a lot of our knowledge and applications have come from, you know, driving that Coke relationship as well in other aspects of business uh, moving forward. And they're, they're pretty heavily involved in the oil and gas industry. <laughs> so I can see that would be a good, a good matchup. Yes. We, we like to work with other companies that we can drive, you know, optimization and create efficiencies and maybe other ways that other companies don't have those luxuries like we do. Well, and I am curious and I ask a lot of our guests because, you know, bulk fuels is not an industry that most people get into. And then vapor capture and control is an even more specialized niche. How did you get involved with vapor control technology? Would you go to school? What kind of career path did you experience? So I did not get my you know special degree in vapor control. Um, I did not know about that in college as well. I graduated from the University of Kansas, so I am from Kansas originally. I graduated in chemical engineering, um, so a lot of my background in college was specifically around chemicals, um, engineering bases. I had done some experience with oil and gas as part of my internships, in addition to some pharmaceutical involvement. So, kind of hit every direction that you could. Coke Industries actually recruited me out of the University of Kansas. I ended up taking the position in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So that's where our headquarters are. And I started as an applications engineer in vapor control. And I've been here for now 10 years. So it has been a a long stint. It was something I was not directly familiar with. I learned a lot about it just in my first year in my career. And ever since I haven't left. So I still love it, still love to do it. And it's a really fun field to be a part of. 
What about this field uh, like intrigues you or caught you? Like what made you stay this long in that industry? It's a field that allows me to expand, of course, my process knowledge. Um, so I really enjoy using my process and understanding the engineering behind it. But I also get to interact with my customers. So I get to interact with people. I get to have conversations. I get to find why you need something. So in particular, you know, in this case, talking, why do you need a vapor combustion system? Or why do you need a vapor recovery system? And get to solve problems. Um, and it's a really fun career to be able to always be on your toes, never doing the same thing every day. Uh, I would love to say everything is the same every week, but it never is. It's been really fun. And it, it just, it's ever changing um, in my 10 year career. So um, it's pretty exciting. Yes, we have found that as well. For as uniform as tanks can appear on the outside, uh, once you get into the details, every single tank is different. Every single system is strange and unusual. Your company creates vapor capture and control systems, and the reasoning behind that is a very complex regulation, 40 CFR 63. At the very basic level, 40 CFR 63 is looking to reduce vapor emissions in the United States overall with specific regulations for all sorts of different industries. Uh, Bulk fuel storage and terminaling is one of them. And so I was wondering if you could sort of review how vapor capture and control can benefit human health and the environment, because that's what the EPA is pushing and that's what these systems are intended to do. It's to reduce the amount of vapors being emitted. And I'd just like you to go over how the systems you guys design make that happen. John Zink as a whole, we have multiple product lines that, of course, are looking to reduce overall emissions at facilities. You know, we have boiler burners, flares, thermal oxidizer. We're the company you come to when you need emission control um, in various aspects of many oil and gas. You can say that, of course, with chemical companies, other variations where there's emissions, either from a safety or, to your point, a regulation is driving you to reduce that emission. In particular, my team, so we focus on what we call vapor control, which can get many different names associated to it. We work a lot of time in a lot of loadout facilities, or to your point, bulk storage facilities, where typically you are moving a product or some type of refined product. It's probably down the line of a refinery, so that can include gasoline, these distillates, jet fuel, you know, all of these different things that are kind of at the end of, of the line of a refinery. And we are trying to take what is residual vapor or stuff coming off the liquid, and we're trying to either burn it so we can combust it, um, or we can actually recover it in some cases. So we have kind of driven our market to find those loading operations that are commonly including air as a backfill. So a lot of tanks bring in air. Truck tankers, when they're loading, they push air out, they bring air in. So a lot of our applications are kind of driven in that direction. So the benefit of our systems is, you know, if you don't have anything, it's all just going to the atmosphere. So it's just releasing, which is everybody knows, you know, hydrocarbons aren't great necessarily just to release to the atmosphere. It's better to control them in some way. And so our technologies give you the option to control them by burning. Um, so where you're actually destructing it or converting it to something else, or you can recover it. So you're actually taking it out of the stream, recovering it back into a liquid product, and now it's like air coming back out. So there's a lot of value to companies to install these because for what would be just going to the atmosphere um, and potentially affecting the atmosphere, now we're actually going to do something with it. 
Yep. Recovery is a big economic incentive, I think, for many companies, although in Alaska, our ecosystem and environment make recovery a little less economically (laughs) viable because we're just not as hot as, say, Texas or Oklahoma. And then just a brief overview for those of us who are really new in the listening audience. All of the distillates that you mentioned, they're broken down into sort of these five basic categories. There's aviation gasoline or avgas, low lead 100. There's gasoline, there's jet fuel, Jet A, Jet 8, JP8, JP5. There's all these different kinds of jet fuels. And then there's typically in Alaska, we have number one and number two diesel. Probably in the lower 48, you only have one kind of diesel. We have to add put additives in our diesel so it doesn't gel up in the cold. And all of those have different vapor thresholds. And so things like diesel and Jet A are actually combustible liquids. They don't, they do have vapor, but it's much lower. And the lower the temperature, the lower that vapor. But for two specific types of fuel, the gasoline and the aviation gasoline, those two are flammable and they emit vapors quite frequently. And the higher the temperature, you're going to get a lot more vapor. And so for many of our clients, the control of vapor is also about stopping product loss to vaporization. And if you have nothing in place, not even a pressure vac vent, which unfortunately I have totally seen many times, you're losing a significant, sometimes up to 10% of your uh, storage volume over a really warm summer. Um, And you can actually, with uh, gasoline, because of the low vaporization rate, which is all the way below zero, I believe, Fahrenheit, you can actually lose fuel in the winter too, (laughs) even if it's very cold in deepest, darkest Alaska. So the vapor control and combustion systems are that your firm designs is looking at capturing and controlling those vapors. And the control can either be burning it, which is turning it into something that's not as noxious, converting it, like you said, or it can capture it and return it back to the tank. And those are closed systems. And then I think from the EPA's perspective, benzene's probably the most chemically harmful to the environment component of those vapors. And so they're trying to make sure that overall in the entire United States, benzene levels go down. And that's why they target two specific fuels, which they generally call gasoline because they are different kinds of gasoline. Um, but I definitely get people being like, oh yeah, I've got my gasoline covered. And I'm like, oh, but you have to have avgas too. Don't forget those guys. But all flammable liquids at a fuel farm emit vapor. And so the EPA is trying to reduce that volume. And benzene, as many of us know, is like a cancer causing agent. It's not really great for the environment or people in general. And so the more we can do to capture and control it, the better which is why I really like your systems because they are working so well with the existing atmospheric systems that we had built years ago (laughs) and meshing with them to do that capture and control. We mentioned briefly that this can be a benefit to the business. Do you want to talk specifically about what these systems can do, like the upside of vapor control to like the bottom line? Yeah, absolutely. One thing we always say is you do have vapor control on your system and it's another piece of equipment, but what currently is there is it's just releasing around people. And that's kind of scary to think about. That's that's not something, you know, you want your team or your company to be exposed to. So you want to make sure everybody feels safe and feel safe in their operation. And so our, our system can be integrated to take away that fear of anything being around Um, employees and, you know, of course that concern directly tied to it. So that is an upside to a business with specifics to that. Combustion is a tough one because everyone knows combustion, you're burning it. You know, the joke is you're burning money because it's, it's residual gas that is in a vapor phase. And so, you know, although it's, it's, it's burning, 
it is still allowing, you know, the safety aspect and it's allowing you to maybe extend your business model to hold more product or it's extending you um, other opportunity that maybe you weren't before. And so there's, there's benefits to that. And then, you know, we did talk a little bit about vapor recovery, as you mentioned in, in Alaska, it's not necessarily a perfect option. Uh, we have, you know, some systems up in Alaska, but these recovery systems have value um, for a lot of locations around the U S and then some in Alaska where we can actually take the hydrocarbon. We can take that volume that is being released, you know, as you mentioned from the product and convert it into a product. So we're actually taking it and we're reintroducing it as a recovered product that you can then take and, and resell. So it's, it's an investment of course, to the system, but there's value that's coming from that recovery and that you can use it again. And it's, it's good for the environment. And then of course, you know, doesn't hurt to get some money out of it too. So there definitely the recovery has more, you know, bottom dollar benefits from you hear recovery versus burning. Um, there of course is the, the two twofold, but I do think both technologies give you an opportunity to make sure your business is running safely. And of course, letting you optimize your potential future growth as well. Yes. Vapor capture and control systems once installed, allow companies to operate at a much higher level and have a much higher daily, monthly, and annual throughput of those gasoline products. They also allow you to continue operating under 40 CFR 63 if you have met certain criteria in your operational history. And then you're right. There are vapor recovery units in Alaska. It does make sense in some places. Um, we'll talk about this later, but I think sometimes the the entry cost plays a factor as well. The recovery systems tend to be a little more expensive than the combustion systems. And so a lot of our clients, when they're looking at the cost analysis, they're trying to see how many years it will take them to pay off the system. And so combustion typically wins out because it's shorter recovery time. <laughs> it is something that, you know, we understand. We, we jokingly say there is a breaking point on vapor recovery where you decide if it's, it's for you or not. Um, not to say you can't do it on every system, but sometimes commercially it may not make the decision. So the nice thing about our team is, we're very equipped to look at both. Um, we can give that analysis back and say, hey, maybe combustion is a better option, um, both commercially and just long-term life of the equipment. So I do agree with you. There are pluses and minuses to both. <laughs> well, and every capital expenditure project has to go through that cost analysis. And I do appreciate your team's ability to consider all of the factors. I mean, your team was amazing working with limited internet record-keeping options. Like, I, I was really impressed with their flexibility and with your technology's flexibility of doing things different ways to be able to, to be able to help us figure out the problem or solve the problem. Emily, could you give us a brief description of the difference between a vapor return system and a vapor combustion system? Yes, I can do that. So as we mentioned, you know, vapor combustion is a lot simpler and, and it kind of goes with the name. So vapor combustion systems, how they work is we will connect. It's what we call a VCU. You'll hear that a lot. So it's a vapor combustion unit. Um, you'll see that as a, a short acronym on most of our, our PFDs or things like that. Oh, air. Air is full of acronyms. It's an acronym salad. <laughs> 
And I am horrible at acronyms. So I do my best to explain them when I talk with them. What we'll do and in, in, you know, a specific case in Alaska, we'll take a truck loading operation. So, so say a truck pulls in, you're going to load product. So you're filling the truck with liquid. So from there, the vapor or whatever is in the vapor space from the truck and will be displaced to what we call a vapor collection system. So what the vapor collection system is a pipe built out where you will modify your truck racks. You have certain safety you know, features um, underneath to capture the vapor. And then of course, that will then be piped over to our system. From there, the combustion system is very simple in its nature. So we have what we kind of walk it through of how it would go through the system. But we have a valve. We have also three levels of what we call flashback prevention. This is something that we find very important. You know, if you're burning, if there is flame, you got to have safety. Um, that is a big feature for us that we, we like to talk about. So how our system will work is you go through the valve. So this is just an actuated valve. Um, it'll open and close depending on pressure. So one of our um, features for safety is actually pressure control. So we make sure that we're staging based on pressure. Um, we don't want to send just a constant stream to our system. We want to make sure it's pressurized and that it's going to open and not just sit open. And what happens if there's no truck loading and we're burning? You know, that's not good for assist gas usage. It's not good for operation of the system. So one of the things we do is pressure control. From there, we'll have what we call a detonation arrester or in a lot of terms, people say DA, that's another, another ver version. Um, there are other things in the market called a flame arrester. Um, that's another version of flashback prevention. Um, we specifically use a detonation arrester um, due to its capacity to be able to protect a detonation in the pipe. Um, so they both have differences in terms of what length of pipe they can take a detonation or a flame. Um, so we prefer the detonation arrestor based on our operation. If you look at them, they're big old bulky looking things. What they are is they're just actually, it's a lot of crimped metal. Um, so internally they have these gaps. So they've crimped metal to have these gaps to help with flame propagation. So it's actually trying to minimize what actual exposure to the flame it has and it's kind of stopping it. It's breaking up that big vapor cloud or whatever into small pockets. Yes. Exactly. So it's in, and you know, we are not the, the builder of those. We, we get those from a supplier, but we typically define those as based on the grouping of the either chemical or product that you're loading. Um, those suppliers will talk about groupings of say, you'll hear group D or group C or all these groupings. Um, and what that's telling us is if for the most part, we have a group D. So in, in this space, so in gasoline vapor, um, that would be what we define as a group D. Um, and we define it as a group D because of the constituents of gasoline. So that's the butanes, the pentanes, um, all of that. And they have designed these arrestors for what that actual detonation would look like from those chemicals. So that's how we go through that selection. But that is a big piece of the, the vapor combustion system. So there's piping that's collecting the vapor from the truck at the truck rack, and it's pushing it back to this DA unit, and the vapor's collecting inside of it, and then it's pushed, it's pushed through that? Yes, so it looks like a, kind of trying to describe, so it's like coming into a pipe. We'll have pipe on our skid as well, so you'll see pipe. Um, the pipe leads it to a valve, and then we'll pipe outside of the valve to the detonation arrestor. It's a passive device, so it's in that line. And then the pipe will actually go from there to what we call our vapor combustion stack. So that is actually the, the cylindrical shell stack 
um, where the burning happens. So that's where the actual flame occurs. They are impressive. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> they're very tall and they're set off away. They have to be set back so far from the tanks and the truck rack because, of course, yes. the fire. Uh, but yeah, they look like a big they, chimney up to the exactly. sky. And, and there, and you know, we try to keep them as simple as possible because the intent is to contain the flame. So we are trying to make sure, um, one joke that we always get is, so we do have open flame systems. They are not, they're not the typical norm. Um, they, in, in, in new world, a lot of folks don't like to see open flames as much anymore. Um, so we created a vapor combustion system that has a shell. So it actually, it is not an enclosed, so it is not, there's not a top, um, but they are enclosed to minimize, you know, the outernal reach, the outreach of the flame. The, the visual impact of the flames in the sky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and there are benefits to it as well. Um, so we kind of walk through the staging skid and you get through the staging and what we call pressure control in that line. Mm -hmm. And now you have the vapor combustion stack, which the stack is where we actually do a lot of our modeling to know what type mm -hmm. of destruction efficiency we're getting. How are we temperature controlling? So kind of going back in the day of what we used to do, a lot of the systems you see in the past were either open flame. So there's no temperature control. So they just... You, you light it with a pilot, it burns, and that sounds good. That's, that's what you're doing. We've come a long way where we even took a step from there, and they started enclosing it, but they actually didn't temperature control. And when I'm describing temperature control, what that means is we're actually modulating the air coming into the system. So on the stack itself, you have these dampers, um, or they're kind of big air, air dampers that you see on the side of the stack. And they cannot be blocked by snow. We know this. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, I have had my fair share in, in that region of getting a little creative with how you put things next to a stack with uh, four feet of snow. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, it cannot be blocked by snow. Um, and the benefit, we have those on there and we design them for a certain amount of air infiltration because part of combustion is you need the air with the hydrocarbon with something to light it. Um, so we have a pilot system that comes in. It's actually the gas that either propane or natural gas. A lot of cases in Alaska, of course, are propane. Most of our facilities are propane. I don't, uh, well, that's not true. I do maybe know of one that's on natural gas. I think all the rest are propane. And then I do just, I want to clarify this, the, the burning of it. And I, we, we deal with this in like public outreach meetings as well, is that it's a very striking image. Um, and I, I think if you work in the oil and gas industry and you're, you're used to like flare flaring off a stack or whatever, like those are normal. And I, I think if, if I could, for our listeners, when we're breaking it down by combustion, it's a process where we're taking all these complex chemicals that are cancerous and no good, and we're turning them into their basic carbon elements and ash. And so it is striking, but if you imagine that what we're doing is, you know, destroying chemicals that are not good for you instead of looking at it as a, you know, a flame, I think that goes over well. And the temperature modulation, let's talk about that because that is driven by the EPA's requirements. They say you have to be 95% or better efficiency and you have to show that you're meeting the 95% efficiency. <laughs> yes. So as I had mentioned, we went from no temperature control completely 
to then the, the regulation and actually the market was driving us to be temperature control. Now, temperature control has been around for a long time. This isn't something that's new to the industry, but there is opportunity to be more strategic about how we do it, um, trying to optimize the system because part of temperature control, as we alluded to talking about propane, is with destruction efficiency on a system, you have to have temperature and you have to have residence time. And so when we're looking at a system, we're taking the vapor that's coming to us and saying, okay, we have to pick a temperature at a certain residence time to get us a certain destruction efficiency. So in this case, 95% has to be a guarantee. And we have all of this process knowledge to, to know how to control and, and what those parameters should be. But in operation, what happens if you get a vapor stream that has no hydrocarbon? So what if it's air? but you're loading. And, and so you have to meet a temperature. So the way to do that is we introduce a supplemental fuel. So in, in Alaska, for the most part, it's propane. And that fuel is actually what helps us heat up the stack. So it is getting us to the process guarantee of say, you know, a, a typical standard is 500 degrees Fahrenheit in our stack. And so it's, it's getting us to that baseline to prove that we are meeting a 95% destruction efficiency. But then you also have to consider the other side of it. So what if your stack is too hot? You know, our stacks do have limitations. They are refractory lined. They are built to withstand temperature, but you don't want to run it too hot because now you're going to potentially, you know, hurt your equipment. You're going to maybe not, the longevity of the equipment is not there. So we also have a high point where we'll temperature control. So we'll say, oh, our stack is too hot. Let's open up that air damper at the bottom and introduce air. So we're trying to control to kind of a perfect temperature where we know we're meeting destruction efficiency, but we're also not, you know, we're keeping the longevity of the equipment. We're not operating too hot. And then of course, we're minimizing supplemental fuel. We don't ever want to have to have too much fuel. That is our goal is to minimize that fuel. Um, we know it costs to the customer. We know it's kind of not good for us to do it anyway. So this temperature control is really important with the system itself. And that's really how we make sure that we're meeting all of those requirements. So this system, what I really like about it as somebody who works in the regulatory side of things and the operations side of things, not necessarily on the design side, is your system has those guardrails and it will not operate and it will not allow you to load fuel if it cannot attain the 95%. If it's too hot or too cold, it turns itself off and sends you an error code. So from an operational perspective, it's it's basically making sure you never are in violation of your EPA <laughs> requirements at a fundamental level. And there are definitely some like false codes and it can cause some problems sometimes, um, but your team is really good about answering that phone call. Really good. I've never had an, I've never had a case where a client has called you guys and not heard back from you within 30 minutes. Like it's been pretty good. I did have one question about the temperature piece of it. How does the ambient air temperature affect that? Because some of our locations have really wide varieties. Like one in Western Alaska, it could be up to 88 degrees in the summer and all the way down to minus 45 in the winter. Like that's a pretty wide range. Yeah, it's definitely not Texas um, from that standpoint. <laughs> so yes, I will say cold weather does affect our system, you know, in, in every which way you could say. So from an ambient standpoint, um, so our systems are typically built out of carbon steel. 
Um, they are very, we, we don't have the need for, you know, more efficient steel. Carbon steel is really good in our application. It, it does the job. Now, in really cold weather, um, there is the potential for that steel rating to be not as low as potentially where the location is. Um, so that may be a change in, of course, materials of construction, um, looking at things like that. But a lot of things that we also include or recommend, um, I guess in that way, is heat tracing and insulation. A lot of low points in a line, so that can be the valve seat, right at the bottom of the valve seat. The detonation register naturally has a kind of curved bottom um, where it can collect liquid. That can freeze up, um, and that's all just due to the atmospheric cool. Yeah, so, so air, as many of us know, is not just gases. It also has humidity, and it has water in it. And some of the spaces and things like your detonation arrestor are very small. So it doesn't take a whole lot of water to be collected over a season for it to really throw a wrench into the, into the whole system. Yes, yes. And then, of course, the ambient air, as I already mentioned with the temperature control. So we bring in ambient air. So in our stack, we are exposed to ambient air all the time. And if your heating space, so think of the stack as like a enclosed space is at negative 40, that's a lot colder than, you know, starting from say a, a 30 degree or 40 degree, you know, starting point. So what may end up happening is we may actually need more supplemental fuel just to get us above to be in an ambient condition um, because so I guess I'd say a more normal ambient condition than a, than a negative 40 condition. Um, so, you know, that also affects our system in that it may cause an increase in supplemental fuel. Um, you know, the, the hope is that's more part of the startup of the system. So that's getting it warm, getting it ready to go. Once it's operational, then of course the hope is that you're maintaining the temperature. It's not turning off too often. Um, but yeah, one of the negatives, unfortunately, is you do have to use a little bit more um, gas to get it up to temperature. And that's an allowance for the, the environment that it's operating in. And when we go through the initial startup, there is a whole startup phase that you guys go through, which I also really enjoy because it ensures that everything's working. But during that initial startup, we always give our clients guidance. I'm like, whatever you propane you think you're going to use, just double it. Because a lot of our communities get it by barge. <laughs> and so there is no other way to get more except to fly it in at great expense. And I'm like, if, if you don't use that much, great, you'll have more propane next year. But if it uses more than we think it is, because it's an especially cold winter, you're going to, you know, you need a, a cushion. And once you've operated it for a year or two, you'll know exactly how much it takes. But one thing that's bit our clients before is, you know, if they have an unusually high demand here, like they're selling a lot more uh, gasoline than they normally do, it can really, like, depending on what time of year they're selling it and how much supplemental propane they need, it can really affect how much propane they need to have on hand for that. Um, so it's not just the system itself, but also the throughput. If you're going to increase the throughput, you need to look at when you're going to increase it and what that might do to your system. Um, so thank you. I think that's a really good overview of combustion. And my favorite part about the combustion stacks is there's a little step in a viewing window and you can like watch it burn, which is my favorite. I always take a peek when I go up to them. <laughs> well, and it's funny because we have them of course for, for you all to see it and get to look in, but it's actually really important for us too, because that's how we can make sure we're aligning pilots, um, that everything flame scanner is lining up to see the pilot. So we joke that it's a viewing window, but we actually use it too to be able to make sure the system's operating well. So if we don't have those, we'd be, uh, I think 
a lot of our technicians would be pretty disappointed. They'd have to look through a damper trying to figure out how to align a pilot. So <laughs> I don't even know how you would see inside it without it. There's no way. <laughs> so, so vapor combustion systems, we've definitely installed more of those, but there are vapor recovery systems. And so could you talk a little bit about how that system works? I have a feeling it starts the same. You've got a truck rack and it's pushing vapor out, but then what, what's different about the recovery system? Yeah, absolutely. So um, to your point, everything upstream is still the same. We're still receiving the vapors and the vapor collection. Nothing is really changing. It's when you get to our skid edge and, and what you're looking at on the system itself is, is very different. So our vapor recovery systems are what we call in, it's an ADAB system. So what that means, it's a carbon adsorption system. Okay. I love being very enunciated in these words because you have I still- to with add and absorb being so close together, <laughs> yes. but exactly opposite in meeting. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I, I will reference AD a lot or AB um, as in boy. I say that a lot and mm-hmm. I always say I'm not trying to talk like a- kid. I'm just, it's a, they get very muddled, um, together, but how our system works is we utilize, um, activated carbon or what we call, you know, it's, it's kind of these little coal pellets in that way. Um, it's an activated carbon system that we will collect the vapors on. So we, it's these two vessels. So kind of think of it like, We've probably seen maybe in Alaska too, there are um, a lot of confusion comes from carbon canisters a lot where they are used as more of a passive carbon filter. If you want to say it that way. Um, We also use carbon filters in water. We use them in all these sources. So we're using a carbon that's applicable to hydrocarbon service. So we're actually taking a certain volume of that carbon. It's a batch process. So we have two vessels that we actually put this in. Um, And the reason behind that is in one vessel, we'll collect the vapor. So it comes in a pipe. Um, We have kind of what we call almost like a staging skid, very similar to a VCU. Um, And what that staging skid is doing is it's isolating the two vessels. So one vessel will receive vapors. Um, So what that's doing is it's opening a valve. It goes into this vessel and it passes through that vessel. So it's a passive, very similar to other filters, Um, And it's going to collect all the hydrocarbon. So it's collecting it. And then it comes out the top. um, It actually goes through a vent stack and it's clean air. So it's kind of like a filter. It it comes out as clean air. On the other side, so because passive carbon canisters, they fill up. So they get to a point where they are full. Um, And a lot of times those are not advantageous in our field because we have such high hydrocarbon that it would fill up too fast. The cost of ownership, having to replace it and all of that is not good for our service. So instead, what we do is we actually use a regeneration system or a vacuum system to clean off the carbon. So in the other vessel that's now full, so say it already went through this process, it collected all these vapors, it's what we are saying is it's full. So it has hit its peak of capacity. From there, we're going to use a vacuum system to actually clean it. So we're going to desorb it or pull that hydrocarbon off with a vacuum system. And that's what gets the carbon back to being clean again. So it actually is in like a working state. So it's like cleaning the filter off. It's cleaning the filter off so it can be reused again. Okay. Exactly. So the the intent is because our service is so high hydrocarbon in, in a lot of cases, it's a reusable system. So it can be continuously used over the course of its life. It is not, you don't have to, you know, it's not a carbon canister where you have to replace it every six months. It's, 
Now it does have a working life. So carbon mm-hmm. in its nature, it has a working life. It will eventually get spent. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It, it's like anything, you know, it's, you know, it, you have to, it's a filter, you have to replace it. Um, we typically say in our systems, it can range anywhere from seven to 10 years um, of life of expectancy. So um, we know it's a big piece of the system. Um, it's, it's a commercially expensive piece of the system. So we try to always look at opportunities for different types of carbon. Um, folks always joke, why do you use certain types of carbon? Because it can come from coconuts. It can come from coal. It can come from wood. It can come from all of these things. And what we're trying to do, of course, is find the best working capacity, so making sure that it can capture everything. Um, but then, of course, looking at cost. We know cost is a big driver, um, so we want to make sure we're meeting all the process guarantees that we are setting forth, but of course, considering long-term life of, of the equipment too. So when it, when it cleans it off, where does the carbon that it cleans off go or the hydrocarbon? So you, you've wiped it all out, the filter's good to go again, but where are you putting the hydrocarbons that come off of that? Yes. So the hydrocarbons will be pulled off. So we use a vacuum pump is what we call it. Um, so it's some type of vacuum system where it pulls a deep vacuum. So almost a full vacuum on the carbon itself. And it'll actually desorb all of those hydrocarbons. So mostly hydrocarbon coming off of it. It goes through our vacuum system and then that will actually discharge to the, so the AB part of the conversation. So the absorber um, part of the conversation where this is kind of like a packed tower. So we'll actually discharge the vapor into a tower. Um, and from there, what we use is we actually use a slipstream of the product that's being loaded or some type of product on site. So a lot of cases we use is gasoline and we bring a slipstream into our tower. So the vapor will actually come in, the liquid comes in the top and they collect together. Um, so it's kind of like a, a packed bed where we actually will have random packing inside the absorber itself that allows contact time. It allows those vapors to be recovered. And then that's where the actual recovery happens. You're laying the vapor alongside active liquid and allowing it to absorb right back into the the stream. Oh, okay. I got it. Exactly. Yep. And so then we actually have a return line. So then at the bottom of the vessel, we'll send that liquid product back. Um, so typically we get the product from a tank. Um, so tanks are the most common operation we use. Um, they're stagnant products. It's sitting a volume of product. That's great for us. Um, we've also done loading lines. We've done other scenarios where we've had to pull from other applications. The system in itself is really unique um, in how a lot of it sounds very simple. I know not compared to combustion, but it sounds simple. I can see I can see where your <laughs> chemistry degree comes in handy for this because yeah. you're right. There's a lot of chemical processes. Just the word adsorb and absorb have a lot of chemical processes <laughs> in, embedded in them. Yes, I know. We we jokingly have a picture that maybe I'll have to send you all as part of a reference for absorb and adsorb, where it's um, for adsorption. So ad we we say it's adhering, so sticking. Mm. So the picture is a guy getting a pie in the face. <laughs> It sticks and pie into the thing. And then the absorption is like taking in, or what in that case, it's eating the pie. So it's that's a very good in. visual. I like it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll have to make sure to get it because that helps us from just a, yeah. a simple looking at it. Um, so, so you reintroduce it to the stream and then you run return lines back to the tank, or generally, usually in 99% of the cases, you're doing it back to the tank. 
Yes. So let me ask you this specific to tank type because we have facilities, our largest facilities have large vertical cylindrical tanks, um, but they also have smaller horizontal tanks. And especially for some of our products like aviation gasoline, they just don't store it in the volumes that they used to now that most airplanes have converted to jet fuel. Um, And so they have smaller horizontal tanks. Does that impact this return system at all? Does it return in a different way or does it have different components? It does. So it's not necessarily how it returns or how we get it. Um, How we look at our system to make sure that it's running at its peak capacity is we want just constant replenished product. Mm -hmm. So anything that is a we joke and say a really big tank, like a really big tank is great for a VRU because that means it's constant replenished product. We're looking for a low vapor pressure product. We're looking for something that's not going to peak out really shortly because, you know, we're recovering to it. So it affects the vapor pressure and, and mm-hmm. we want to make sure that we have enough to operate and not impact the actual product itself. And, and, you know, not saying from a contamination standpoint or anything of the sort, but because we are recovering that product back into it. The concern is if it's not, it's, if it's already high on RVP in the tank and mm-hmm. you're only using a small volume, it doesn't allow the true VRU to have, you know, it's, it's addition to the tank. Um, gotcha. Because now you may be in a tank restriction versus the VRU restriction. When you bring fuel from the tank, to go through your vapor recovery unit, it's too rich and it's not going to absorb too much, very much at the recovery unit. And so you want to make sure that you've got a, a big enough volume that when you're returning this rich fuel to it, it's not raising the richness overall and make, make your system not work. Exactly. See, you're a chemist. You figured it out. <laughs> I, I am definitely a biologist. So I, I think I gotcha. I gotcha. It's like dissolved oxygen, but we're talking carb, hydrocarbons. Yeah. Hey, I got you to use absorb in a, in a sentence. So, so there you go. You already got it. So, okay. So the bigger volume of the tank, it gives you a bigger source of like lower saturation material, but in a smaller tank, what do you guys have to do? Because I, you know, if it's a 15,000 gallon tank, that's not a lot of source. Yes. So that is, that's a tough one. So a lot of times we have to look at, so we can actually also look at calculations Mm -hmm. of length of turnover of a tank. So we can say based on the product, here's our VRU, here's the influx of what the VRU is going to do. We can calculate how long that tank is actually going to last for not exceeding vapor pressure parameters. Okay. So that's something we can do to, to figure that out with you. But then, you know, the question does come up, is this really a viable VRU product or is this, you know, maybe combustion is the next step. We've also done loading lines. Mm -hmm. So loading lines I mentioned, and and the reason why we say loading lines is because it's constant product. So it is constantly getting replenished. A lot of the restriction of that is now the recovered product is going back into the loading line, which is going into the truck Mm -hmm. um, or into other applications. So it's hard to capture what that true recovery is. Gotcha. So it's um, exiting the system and you can't track once it's exited because it's just going straight into a truck exactly. and getting delivered somewhere. Exactly. So we've looked at ways, um, you can also cool the product. Um, so you can almost do like a slipstream cooling product where you're trying to minimize vapor pressure influence. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure in Alaska, a lot of folks know the colder it is, mm-hmm. as to your point, the less it moves into vapor. So it, it stays cold. Um, and so similar with that, if we're exceeding vapor pressure in a tank or in a product, we can cool it 
and bring it down to make sure that we're not just because the system itself will add heat. Mm -hmm. So because it's compressing, because it's absorbing, because it's doing that, we are adding heat to the system. So if we can mitigate that, bring the heat down, we can try and maintain vapor pressure the best we can. Hmm. I I can think of at least one client that had, you know, I think one of their business models is to have multiple horizontal tanks rather than one large vertical because it, you can, you can mix and match. You can take tanks from this location and move them to another. They're a lot more portable of an asset. Um, And I'm I'm thinking specifically of this, like (laughs) I can see where maybe combustion is where you would want to go with that because you, well, I mean, I guess if you have lots of horizontal tanks, you could just borrow from different ones. Like, how would you do that, though? Would would that be an operational, like someone would have to go and open a valve? Yeah. So that's that's the fun part. With, with added tanks comes added complexity. We have done it before. Sometimes um, end users prefer to have multiple tanks, to your point, mm-hmm. because what if a tank has to get cleaned? Yes. And the VRU is only connected to that tank um, that, that limits them. So there are, you know, situations where we can actually put what we use as a, a pump or supply pump. So we're actually pushing the product from the tank to our system. We can put multiple pumps um, at various locations. So we can put out one tank or the other tank or, you know, however we do it. And then we can actually control on our system. So We have a control system and we can pick which pump is working. So we'll say like, Oh, P1, that tank, that's what we want. And this is something, of course, the site can do. So this is on the the operation screen that the site can go, oh, that tank's out for commission. I'm going to go to the other one. I'm going to go select that. And what it'll do is you can do automatic valves. So you can say, hey, isolate, isolate. Here you go. It's ready to go. A lot of folks prefer manual. There are all the different options. You can go down, you know, all the things. But it's been more common to do more tanks than less on a VRU system to give you flexibility. Yeah, that's a really good point about Ullage and being able to operate while also taking the tank down. I will say for many places in Alaska, that is a very complex system that requires access to consistent electricity and yes. <laughs> internet. <laughs> yes. and something that we don't necessarily have in all those locations. Um, and I mean, rural Alaska has electricity, of course, but the, the quality of the electricity can surge pretty frequently. And it's really difficult mm-hmm. on these very complex, highly engineered systems. So thank you. That was a really good overview of how the recovery system works and how the combustion system works and how it works with different kinds of tanks So I'm thinking if you're following along on this podcast with us, if you have your own facility, you're probably thinking like, how do I know which system is best for me? And like, what are some of the um, considerations that someone would look through when they're like picking out a system for what they're trying to do? Absolutely. So this is something that, you know, our team is, that's what we do every day. So we are always happy to help um, go through all of the options and, and all that, all the things that go into it. Um, but high level, when you're looking at the two systems and you're looking at your facility, one big point that you mentioned, so we can start with recovery, recovery, the big thing with it, you want a lot of product to load. It's valuable in that you're recovering. So the more product you load, the more throughput you have better opportunity for return of investment. So we call that an ROI or return of investment. And you mentioned one analysis that's performed is, you know, looking at the, the term of the project and how long is it going to take to, to pay that off? As we've kind of alluded to in, in the scope of work of what's included, a vapor recovery system has a lot more stuff. So there's a lot more 
cost up front um, that may not be valuable to to a smaller facility. Um, it's it's a big in investment cost, um, and maybe with the throughput or the volume, it might not be worth it. So let's talk about throughput scale, because I would say most of Alaska, even in our highest volume, would never exceed even 50,000 or 100,000 gallons of gasoline in a day. They might for jet fuel and they might for diesel, but they probably won't for gasoline. What's like the highest throughput capacity you've ever designed a system for? Oh, my goodness. Um <laughs> I really have to think about this one. So for probably me personally um, and my team, so we've looked at anywhere up to 90,000 barrels per hour. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So scaling, you know, pretty large marine applications with really high throughputs. In addition, we we have a a Luxembourg counterpart in Europe that they are very common to have a lot of large – operating facilities. So for let me do the math. 90,000 barrels an hour <laughs> is 3.7 million gallons an hour. So just for apples to apples, yes. Alaska throughput <laughs> volumes are very low <laughs> compared to what they could be yes. in some of these really large port facilities. Yes. Exactly. Yep. So, and, and that's of course looking at applications. So that's another piece that when you're looking at your application, so in Alaska, you know, a lot of it's truck loading or tank venting or um, lower volumes coming out. There are other applications in the United States and the world where, the, you know, how they're loading, they're loading a ship or they're loading a rail car or they're loading all of these really big vessels that take in a lot of volume. In a very short amount of time, um, which means a lot more vapor because you've yeah. got a lot more displacement. Exactly. So a recovery system is actually a really good option potentially in those cases because, you quickly learn, you pay it off in a very short amount even of time. A 1%, um, yeah, even a 1% recovery on 3.7 million an hour would pay for itself pretty quickly. But exactly. we are based in the Northwest and Alaska. <laughs> so for most of our clients, it's just not going to pencil out ever. Absolutely. And honestly, we that's why we like to sell both. So me and my team, we sell both. And because there's value in, in both applications. Um, that's why combustion, when you kind of lend itself to go to combustion, combustion is tried and true technology. It has been around for a long time. It's really simple in its nature. It has an opportunity for flexibility of product. So you can, you know, we jokingly say it just burns it, but you know, you get the opportunity to say, if you want to start loading a chemical or you want to start doing, you know, other things, recovery may have its restrictions from a process standard, but combustion okay, we may have to look at the detonation arrestor. We may have to consider a different temperature operating set point, but for the most part, it can take in a lot of product. Um, so it can take in variances of product. And then of course, the biggest thing as we have alluded to is cost. So, you know, upfront cost is a lot lower. There's a lot less stuff. Um, so it's very simple in its nature. Another negative of combustion, and I think you actually talked about it earlier, is it is the flame. So you do have to put it in a non-hazardous area. It's it's an exposure to external sources that could potentially cause fire. Um, so you have to be aware. On the design teams, they do so much Tetris trying to fit those stacks onto yes. the limited property that the client has available. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it, it, it's, a, it's tough because that's not something that in a, a refined facility filled with all of these leak points and tanks and things like that. Um, it's not super simple, but 
Um, it, it, that is one tough part about combustion. Um, in addition, it does require a supplemental fuel. So you do have to engage some type of propane, or if you're in a location that has natural gas, something to be able to light our pilots, um, and temperature control. So that's kind of another disadvantage on the, on the combustion side, but uh, you know, it's, a lot simpler and, and it works great and it, it does the job. So when looking at the two in particular, you know, I think VRUs are a lot lend themselves to having opportunity for high throughput facilities. In addition, if you're restricted in hazardous area location, VRUs can be installed anywhere. Yes. I was going to say, I think there's some specific locations in Alaska, especially like maybe high impact port areas or airport mm-hmm. areas that um, they're not allowed to have something like that. So they have to invest in the vapor recovery option. So there's there's regulatory restrictions. Yep. There's throughput. There's cost. There's environment, too, because the colder the air ambient air temperature, the less vapor you're going to produce. Uh, I imagine Texas has a lot more vapor just by virtue of it being hot. Yes. And then um, we also, when we work with CapEx projects, we talk about the system complexity and the ongoing maintenance and operation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you alluded to, the the vapor combustion unit is a go, no-go system, and you guys can actually access it virtually to do... Mm-hmm. sleuthing. You don't have to go to the site often. I mean, sometimes you do, but based on some other systems we've worked with, not vapor control and capture, but just other like tank gauging systems and stuff, they often have to send a technician out to actually look at it and see what's mm-hmm. going on with it. But you guys can access everything remotely and it's a uh, much easier operationally to have a vapor combustion system than that return unit. And I I feel like, is there additional training for the return unit as well to operate it? So typically there, because of the more things on it. So there is rotating equipment. There are some other pieces of it that aren't, you know, on a combustion system. Um, it's still something that local technicians can take on and do. The biggest difference is there's just more to do. So it's not as, you know, you're maybe how many pieces of equipment you have on a combustor versus a recovery system. It may take you a lot less time to get through it because of the amount but a recovery system, you do have to consider, for example, on our vacuum pumps, you have to change the oil. It, it's things mm-hmm. like that that you may not necessarily have to do on a combustion system. But we try to build both units to be very user-friendly, to be able to have local operations take true ownership of the product itself. Because, you know, we, we have a fleet of technicians on our side that are across the United States and they are more than happy to get out to see you. But, you know, our goal is that we don't have to. We want to come and do your maintenance yearly. We want to come do the stuff that, like, it's more of it's nice to have the our technician come and, and check those things and go through these steps versus every time it shuts down or something breaks or things like that. It's something that someone locally could do. We, I, we definitely appreciate that on the operational side because it never breaks during your scheduled visit. It breaks, you know, in the middle of winter. <laughs> But it's very difficult to get here. Yes, that's always how it works. Okay, so we've talked through like selecting the system, and I want to switch gears a little bit for those of us that have one installed or maybe are going to in the near future. Uh, We've been through four different startup processes, and there's definitely some uh, troubleshooting that happens during the startup phase. Um, Could you talk about some startup troubleshooting, like if someone's going to go through this whole process because they have decided to invest in this technology for whatever reason, what are some troubleshooting startup issues that you've seen that maybe if someone was thinking ahead, they could head off? 
since vapor combustion is the driver in the area, we can talk about that one probably first. And for majority of the conversation, as you mentioned, we'll, we'll, we'll ship the equipment so that the equipment comes to site. We have what we call a startup pre-checklist. So we, we give the site this checklist and we're not trying to be the, the person to bug you about getting all these things done or anything. But what that's helping us do is before we send a technician out and maybe, you know, like we're trying to avoid all these potential things that could happen. We're giving a pre-checklist from our service team to say, hey, have you, for example, have you checked the electricity? Are you connected? Um, have you run the propane or natural gas line? Have you done all these things? And, and the, the drive behind that is we're trying to make sure we do as much as we can um, before, of course, our technician comes to site because we're trying to minimize the overall time our technician is there just to make sure that we're, we're getting all our ducks in a row. So once all that happens, so that's a big piece of it. Once our technician will get there, so we typically send a, a John Zink service technician and they will actually come to the site. And what they'll do is they'll pretty much double check work. So they'll make sure everything looks like it got installed correctly, um, making sure, you know, it's up to safety part, making sure everything looks right. Um, and then they'll even do wiring point to points. So they're going to go and say, Hey, is this valve, can this valve move? Um, is this thermocouple reading correctly? Is like, so we're going through all these steps. And the reason why we're doing that is because we don't want to turn it on and have an error. We want to go through all these diligent checks. We want to make sure that before it even touches anything, it's gone through these checks. We really appreciate that checklist because from a regulatory perspective, when we are notifying the EPA in the state of Alaska that this vapor combustion unit or vapor recovery unit is going into service, we have to show that it met the 95% criteria. And your entire startup checklist, by the time you're done, I can just send them that document. And it shows that the facility is fully in compliance and it's installed correctly. And it's just, it's really valuable from a, a regulatory perspective. We don't see that with a lot of other systems we install in tank farms. <laughs> so it's, it's really nice to be like, here, EPA, we're fully compliant. And, and, and here is the documentation for it. Uh, so that part, just from a, from a record keeping standpoint is really helpful. Yes, absolutely. And that's, we want it as well. So we want to make sure we did our job. You know, our, our goal is to be the source that you come to at the very beginning. We walk you through the design and then from there we walk you through execution. So we actually build it, put it together. And then, you know, we want to start it up. So we want to make sure it comes from beginning to end and, and we're that source. Um, so well, that's one thing the technician will go through as well is they'll have a cause and effect. So they'll look and see, has everything been safely done? Um, so that's safety shutdowns, that's alarms, that's all of the, you know, things you guys love to see on your screens when it pops up and says, you know, MOV 101 failure or something like that. We're actually purposely making it fail so that we know that alarm will come to you all. We know when the system's going to fail. So then what it'll do is it'll pull that permissive. So it'll say, Hey, you shouldn't be loading because my vapor combustion system's not working. So it's, it's doing all of those interconnects um, as part of that as well. And then as part of the startup, you actually run quite a bit of product through the system to ensure that it is meeting the 95% combustion goals. And I, I know that um, your, your team's pretty good about preparing the client for that, but we also work with them to make sure that they are able to meet that need and have enough fuel to run through it. Um, because it's it's a pretty robust test. <laughs> it is. And, and you said it exactly right. So the other big piece of combustion that we want to make sure we have is an adequate fuel line. A lot of times, you know, in the cases to you meant, that you mentioned earlier, 
propane, it may not be readily available. So we want to make sure it is because if we're going to start up and, and make sure we're operating at temperature, which is what defines a true destruction efficiency, we have to make sure to have that gas. And, and sometimes it might be, say, a lack of pressure or a lack of flow. And that's a big piece to make it operational. And then I do have one operational hint from us doing this recently is that, you know, a lot of our, uh, a lot of our clients are stressed with truck availability and truck driver availability. And when, when this startup test occurs, there's a lot of truck loading that has to happen to generate the vapor to test the system. And so what we've run into is that in addition to making sure you have enough propane, you have to make sure you have enough drivers and trucks and an ability to potentially backfill the tank rather, you know, because a lot of our communities don't sell eight trucks of gasoline in a day or something, Mm -hmm. and they just don't have anywhere to put it. And so they have to be able to load and offload the truck on a cycle. And that takes time and we have to time it super carefully. So we're not interrupting the vapor flow during that test. And so that specific operational piece, um, we, we learned that we have to be very specific with the scheduling of that and making sure that they've got the capacity to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, And to what you alluded to too, we typically call that a source test. So a lot of times we have our startup sequence. So we go through the startup, the equipment is running, and I'm not sure in Alaska specifically what the requirement is for source testing, if it's 30, 60 days. I know in, in some other locations, it, it falls under a certain category. But once it's operational to us, we have met the parameters based on temperatures and, and things like that. So the source test is what actually proves by documentation that, hey, it's doing its job. And that's where we like to be involved as well, either from a remote support standpoint, or we can even have a service technician come out and do a pretest, is what we call it, to be able to just test the system and say, hey, can we can we do it? You know, that kind of thing. Because it, it does require a separate source testing capacity yes. from a, a third party. In my mind, I was thinking it was all one startup process, but you're right. <laughs> there's the John Zink startup, and then there's the actual source test. But John Zink's heavily involved in it. I think that's why yeah. I moved them all together. Absolutely. Yeah. And we want to be, you know, the intent for our goal is we want you to meet your compliance needs. So if the system is not doing that, you know, that's where we want to get called. We want to say, Hey, let us troubleshoot, let us figure out what's going on so that, you know, if it's, it's a parameter on site, great. We can work with you all to fix it. Uh, if it's something on our system, we can work remotely and fix it. So it's, it's great from that level. And we want to be involved on that aspect as well. John Zink does a really great job of being available for that. And you guys have installed so many kinds of systems at this point. And your team especially has done quite a bit in Alaska. So it's really helpful. They're not, it's not like somebody who's only worked at the Port of Los Angeles and is now looking at Western Alaska. You, you guys have done the right scale to have good, good thoughtful feedback. Um, so related to that feedback, what are some common operational issues that you guys have helped troubleshoot over the years? I'm sure as we've already talked about many a times, it's not the warmest climate at all points in Alaska. So one of the biggest operational issues we see is freezing um, or temperature control concerns. Um, Really cold climate. It can be tough on the system. So making sure that, you know, we're either insulating where needed or making sure we have enough gas to keep up to temperature. Um, That's a big troubleshooting one in Alaska that we've run into many a times just because of the cold climate. Another one that it's funny, it's not just in Alaska, it's everywhere, are the pilots. Um, so we we have a pilot that we manufacture. So pilots are great in that they're a little warm spot and they have a little tiny little gap um, that's off the pilot. 
bugs love it. Um, Mm -hmm. and other things really enjoy that little tiny heat spot. And so a lot of times bugs can actually get in our pilot, um, line of fire and it can cause pilot issues. Um, there can also be more electrical issues like grounding, you know, like flame scanner, not aligned, um, things like that. And, Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what that can happen is say just, it got bumped or someone went up and readjusted it and no one knew it. Um, or maybe just, I feel like an earthquake bumped one, uh, in South central Alaska. (laughs) Exactly. So flame scanners are really important because that's what proves our pilot. Um, that Mm -hmm. was what makes sure. So we want to make sure there's a flame because we don't want to just run it through our burners. We want to make sure that it's actually burning. Um, so the flame scanner is really important to make sure we have a flame. It is truly burning. Um, and it's doing its job in that way. So we have had some, you know, more like flame scanner misalignment, you know, troubleshooting, things like that. But a lot of that, you know, all kind of stems back to the pilot a little bit. But for the most part, as long as you're doing your walkthroughs and and double checking things and doing that kind of stuff, it it can be easily remedied. What about air intake management? Because I know we had at least one system that had a wind issue, like it was facing into the wind and it was blowing into the intake and it was really messing up the air ratio. (laughs) If I were to guess it was bringing in too much air, um, yes. probably yeah. what was happening. Yeah. So, um, when that happens and it's funny cause a lot of times you don't have to have concern about that, but it may be a operational set point change. So that's mm-hmm. on the damper and particularly we can try and, you know, modulate that a little different. So maybe keeping it partially closed is almost seen as like hundred percent open because the wind intake is so much higher. Um, so that's where things like that, of course, you can't control. I can't control. It's just where it sits. So, so in this level. particular case, we, we, we parked a Connex in front of it and created a windbreak and, and that was a incredibly easy solution to that. But I think we went through those troubleshooting pieces first mm-hmm. and the wind was still enriching the environment too much. It was way too much air. Um, and then we have the opposite that gets plugged with snow or, you know, it's not shoveled out and it's unable to get enough air. So it's, it's, yep. you need yep. to dug out. And then I yeah. think we had and icing. We had icing on it once where like they weren't moving because they were iced up. Yes, that can happen a lot. Um, you'll actually <laughs> see that with actuators as well. You yes. can see where actual ice um, forms on it and it doesn't move. So that's not good for the system um, by any means. So we, you know, any type of, to your point, you did a great job, put a Connex in front of it, make it block some of the wind. Um, <laughs> but that will actually blow out a flame potentially. So mm-hmm. there's concern with that. And, and so, yeah, to your point, environmental concerns are always probably the biggest one in Alaska, but there are ways we try to mitigate it and, and fix it. And even if you need to install, we've, I think one system, maybe we put um, up on a concrete pad so that it was like mm. four feet above ground so that if four feet of snow were to occur, it never yes. touches the system. Um, and, and from our standpoint, that's a no brainer for us. You know, it's, it's like, sounds great. Put it on a pedestal, you know, bright, bright, shiny picture of it on a pedestal. It looks great. <laughs> for everybody. I, I just hope all the engineers listening to this take that into consideration because when we do the design work for these CapEx projects, and I am not an engineer, but we, we work with many of them like you, there's definitely some of those considerations that have to happen. Like you have to look at snowfall for the region and or wind availability if you're stuck yeah. out on a peninsula over the water, you know. 
I remember one of the teams that we worked with, um, they were very proactive in that we, we do have an air assist blower on our stack. Um, so it looks like a kind of big old piece of equipment jutting out from the side of the stack. And that's actually what we're using to mix the stream coming into our burners. That's how we get the like free mixture. And they proactively said, we get four feet of snow. So that blower is actually sitting right at grade. And if it gets covered in snow, it's probably going to not do well. So they proactively worked with us to create a ducting solution oh, where we actually like ducked it up. So it actually went up onto a pedestal and we were able to help them kind of come up with a design that didn't impact the actual blower capacity or flow or anything like that. Um, but they did a great job of thinking proactively of that's probably one item we don't want sitting in, in a lot of snow. Do you have any suggestions or tips and tricks for operating the system to like make it live longer or not decrease the life or functionality of that system? If it's your job, your responsibility to operate this vapor combustion unit, what are some things you can do to make it live longer? And what, what are some things that can really shorten its life? The system as a whole, you know, our, our rule of thumb is you, you got to check it. It's going to operate great. It's going to give you the go signal. That doesn't mean it doesn't look a little, you know, needs a little love um, at some points in time. So, you know, we at least recommend doing daily, if not weekly checks, just to make sure everything looks okay. You know, a lot of guys on site are very familiar with when things don't look right. So when you're looking at something, just a visual inspection goes a long way. That can include like rust, for example. To your point, humidity, you know, what if things started chipping away at paint or things like that? You know, it's steel. It rusts pretty quick. I have seen humidity in the control box. Um, you have a very robust system with gasketing, but the older they get, the more often we see humidity building up in the corners of those control boxes. I imagine that's not good. It is not. So any any type of <laughs> any type of humidity and moisture, if you want to put it that way, that gets into our system is, mm-hmm. is not great. Um, they are called vapor combustion systems, so they do have vapor. That's what they like. But if, if there is rust spotted, it's always you know recommended to go ahead and take care of it try and prevent damage, get some type of paint on it, just, just to fix it. Especially with the vapor combustion system, we always recommend the detonation arresters and the burners. So the burners I didn't allude to too much earlier, but they're an anti-flashback burner that have a very similar crimped metal as the detonation arrester. And over time, things just can get in them. You know, it's things that get into the pipe, you're trying to capture it, but it, but it happens. And you'll start to see increased pressure drop across them. uh, And that's not good for our system. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times our technicians will at least recommend annually just cleaning them out. So, you know, actually looking into them, seeing if you can take a flashlight through them. Um, Now this is pretty clean service, so you shouldn't worry about it too much, but in a lot of our crude applications or things where stuff can just get in there, it's amazing how quickly those Mm -hmm. things plug. So the burners and the detonation are really important for our system. So we recommend just looking at them annually just to make sure And then, of course, just how you operate it. So I think we talked about longevity of the stack itself, the refractory. You know, refractory has a certain limitation of temperature that it can operate at. If it's not operating at its good conditions, then it's probably not going to last as long. It's life of the equipment. So we definitely recommend making sure it's operating as it should, um, checking those parameters, doing those checkpoints, just kind of to make sure that you're actually just to your point, taking ownership and, and really just going through making sure set points match and, you know, making sure the kind of the basics of just, does the system look okay um, from that level? Not all error codes stop functionality, 
but they can be really important clues for technicians later about what was going wrong before it finally stopped working. Yes, that is a great point. And we, everyone jokingly says we have so many errors and we're like, well, we promise they have a purpose. They either will help you with maintenance life. So if it's say like a differential pressure across the detonation arrestor, it's like, it's increasing. Maybe the detonation restaurant needs some cleaning. Um, so we're, we're trying to kind of give the alluding to your point. If you capture those and you start to see variables changing and errors popping up, maybe it's time to give it a little, you know, look down, see how things are going and doing those checks. Error codes and the performance parameters of the system are closely uh, tied to EPA compliance and state of Alaska compliance. Both of the regulations that govern air emissions uh, place the burden of proof upon our clients to show that all of their equipment is operating at all times. Um, And we've talked about this before. There's definitely a feeling in the industry of like, well, if it's working, it's operational. So I don't need to keep records because it's either go or no go, especially for the vapor combustion unit. And we've seen with the, specifically with uh, EPA, compliant. That's not enough. They need to to be able to see that it was operating and you can limit your own risk by having records that say until this day, it was operating within 95% capacity. Because if you don't have those records, the EPA can say all the way back to whenever you installed it, maybe it wasn't operating since then. And so, um, we have we definitely counsel our clients on having record keeping specific to like the daily, the weekly, and the annual walk down of the system. But your company has tools that can automate some of that. Could you talk about some of the automated record keeping that you guys can embed if needed in the system? One really simple version. Um, we still use it today because to your point, sometimes internet connection, things like that may not be the, the easiest to get out in a tank farm, but it's what we call a temperature recorder. Um, so it can actually just as simple as it sounds, it records the temperature. We jokingly say there used to be a chart recorder where it physically give you paper to be able to record it. But yes, I do remember, <laughs> remember having the little pieces of paper ripped off. Yes. Some people still like paper. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with it, but from a, a long term, it may make sense. The temperature recorder is a really easy device that we can install on our systems. Um, it does kind of the bare minimum that really you need to get you compliant. We also, you know, on our systems itself, we have PLC integration. That's a PLC system. So the PLC system is a logic controller where Mm -hmm. it actually controls how our system runs. So it can be Allen Bradley, GE, you know, we have all these different brands that you can use depending on preference and location and, and things like that. But the intent of those is that we can, of course, control the system. But it's also another form to be able to send information. So there's a connection that can be an Ethernet port. So actually DCS connection. So it pulls that information out of that. Um, and that's pulling, you know, temperatures. It's pulling valve status. It's pulling all of these different things. And it can actually just fully integrate into your system. So that's more of a hardwire kind of connection um, that gives you kind of the, the luxury to pull from that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few other options that are more, you know, I would say they get you a little bit farther. And so one of the technologies we provide is called VaporWatch. VaporWatch is actually a PC um, monitoring system. So it'll pull all that data in and it actually collects into a graphical form. Um, and then it can actually pull into a report form. So it can make it really easy to collect all this data 
um, and see it on a, a live screen to say, Hey, Oh, this isn't working. I don't know. This isn't working or Hey, my emissions peaked on this day. Why did it peak on that day? And the functionality of it is really nice. If you just need to go pull data on say three months ago. And for some reason I can't find, you know, that one file that said that. So, you, you know, it gives you that functionality to do that. So it, it's really nice. And then We've actually, you know, started in the past couple of years integrating what we call, um, it's an insight system. So that is actually mm-hmm. where we can log into your system. So it, it gives us capability in remote locations. You know, I, I can't say a ton of the Tulsa folks go up to Alaska all the time, um, but it gives the, the <laughs> Tulsa folks some opportunity to troubleshoot remotely and see opportunity mm-hmm. to do that. And actually we can also trend more data. So we can actually look at trending over the course of time. Has it gotten better or worse? You know, all these things. And, and so we have a lot of opportunities to be able to trend. It's just a matter of what complexity, what type of data do you want it local? So it, it's nice that we have so many options. That insight option is really nice for facilities that have remote locations, but a central agency or office in in a larger population area, they're able to sort of look out and see how the more remote locations are doing uh, independently and and be able to do, like you said, track trends, monitor things, troubleshoot error codes to help the terminal manager out. So one thing I wanted to say is that Starlink is really changing the landscape of Alaska right now because for a very reasonable price point, we are able to have internet in locations we've never been able to have internet before. Um, And so I I do have a feeling that some of our limitations that we previously saw um, are going to go by the wayside. We also have some massive subsea cable projects that uh, are federally funded that are going into effect. And so I think just just personally, I went to one of the most remote locations in Alaska. It's a place called Port Moeller. And I was able to check my LinkedIn and post from there, which... Previously, I didn't even bring my phone because it wouldn't work. There was no internet. There was no cell. There was no nothing. And thank you. That was an incredible masterclass in all things vapor combustion and vapor recovery related. I appreciate having access to your incredible knowledge, Emily. Related to that, do you have any free resources for our listeners if they want to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So everybody's favorite channel, YouTube. Um, so we have many PFD modeling, um, videos specifically on our YouTube. Um, I can of course give the link for that to make it easier um, to view and things like that, but it it gives you great overview of how our systems work. Um, I always say you can talk about it all day, but when you see a visual makes a lot more sense. And so that, and, and we do it for multiple applications. So you can see combustion and recovery um, and, and kind of differences in the market and what that looks like. And then of course we do have our website that has all of our brochures and detailed data um, and things like that. And then, you know, another thing that's technically free is giving us a phone call. Um, so, you know, we're more than happy to, to have a phone call, um, talk through concerns, questions, um, sometimes it can be overwhelming reading all the, as we joked about absorption, adsorption, um, all the, the little details. Um, and, and my team is very well equipped to be able to just talk through with you what, you know, simply what you need and, and what that looks like and, and driving, you know, a project to, to understand what that means more. So a phone call is free, maybe not to some telephone suppliers, but most of us are through internet nowadays anyways. So, you know, we're always happy to take a phone call as well, just to help answer questions. 
I would second that. Um, you guys have been really helpful on multiple projects with, you know, and we've come in as the subject matter expert for regulatory pieces, but I had specific operational questions and you were really efficient at getting me to the right person who would be able to troubleshoot that for me, uh, which is partially why we reached out for this interview because we've worked <laughs> so well with you for so long. It's, it's been truly a joy working with your company. Um, Okay. And so lastly, do you have any fun facts or interesting history about vapor control that you wanted to share? Yeah. So, um, funny enough, um, one of my coworkers specifically mentioned this one, um, for the, the open flare, the LH flares that we talked about earlier, um, they used to light those with a bow and arrow. So the good old, you know, shoot a bow and arrow that's lit um, up there. And so, you know, back to the good old medieval days of, of shooting a bow and arrow to light something. Um, but I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so, from just so thinking this is of, like Texas in like what time frame? Like 1920s, I, 1930s? Yes, a very long time ago because this has been well before we did enclosed systems. Um, and it's just so funny to think about because of how automation and everything else has improved. I would love to see the RFP for like need, like need Archer very accurate. <laughs> Where flame proof floating. Yeah. And if they miss, man, that could be really bad for, for a lot of facilities. So, you know, you got to be careful. So I'm, I'm happy that automation and um, all of these things have improved significantly um, since too. that day. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I thought that was a pretty fun, you know, little thing. And in our life of being in, in this world for so long, you know, I'm sure the stories are endless of what we've seen. I know a lot of our technicians joke about, um, fun animals that come like to sunbathe, um, on our skids. Yes. Uh, I know we, I know one of them specifically had an alligator that was like the best friend on, on no. the skid. Mm-mm. Give me bears <laughs> anyway. No alligators. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, I don't think that's a skid I'd be walking to really quickly. Um, and I had a, another coworker too, who actually, uh, the refractory on a VCU is really good insulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have not fired up your equipment um, very often, you should probably check it. Um, he was at a site and noticed there was insulation sitting on top of the burners. There were chunks of oh, oh. and was trying to understand where that was coming from. And what do you know? He peeks into the stack and there's an owl oh. that had actually burrowed oh. um, itself into <laughs> the stack. Owl. He's like, what a cozy yeah. owl. And, <laughs> well, and they couldn't, and they couldn't start it up because it was a protected species. So they had to actually call someone to come remove the owl. And then oh, no. they could actually, yes. Yeah. So animals are our friends. Um, they really enjoy our equipment from the heat perspective Yeah, um, and all various things. So those are always funny stories to hear. Oh back my gosh. From our team on that. that owl was <laughs> like, wow, the rent's real cheap. I wonder why no one else is yeah. in here. <laughs> Well, no wind, no rain, you know, just sitting in his little cubby, you know, loving life. So, yes, we always say beware of the critters. Um, They do like our systems. So, Oh, Emily, thank you. What a wonderful interview. Thank you for so much of your time. I appreciate all your expertise. It was a joy to have you. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate, you know, the relationship that we've built. And I can't wait to continue it. Hi there, this is Shannon Olkers, and as the owner of Integrity Environmental, I wanted to take a minute here at the end of the podcast to make sure that you knew the following. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or regulatory advice. 
We are not responsible for any losses, damages, or liabilities that may arise from the use of this podcast. This podcast is not intended to replace professional regulatory or legal advice. And the views expressed in this podcast may not be those of the host, that would be me, or Integrity Environmental. Thank you very much for listening. And if you do need professional regulatory advice, we'd be happy to help you uh, as part of our consulting services.